This morning, we are going to be in 1 Kings chapter 11. So open your Bibles there. By the way, I'm Pastor Paul. I'm one of your pastors here at the Killarn campus. You know, this is getting towards the end of July, which means for every college football fan, hope springs eternal, right? Uh, we have such high hope. Ne never a time in the year are we more optimistic than now, right? The magazines come out, the rankings, the prognostications, then, of course, the beginning of October. Um, if, you're, if you're a football fan, it all comes crashing down, right? Those of you are a Tennessee fan like I am these days. Well, you know, we all have had the experience of, of having high hopes and expectations for things that are off to great starts, but which have very disappointing endings, right? How many of those New Year's resolutions, for example, are you keeping? How about that Bible reading plan, that, that diet? Guys, it happens to all of us. We've all had that experience where, where such high hopes we have at the beginning come crashing down into reality. And most of us, or a lot of us, have even seen it with people, right? And that's where it's particularly painful. So whether it's relationships, marriages, professions of faith, we've all seen it. Such great starts, such disappointing endings. And that's our situation in 1 Kings chapter 11, where we're going to be looking at the life of Solomon. And as my friend Greg Hutchins from our East Campus said, from summit to plummet, which I think was very creative. Now, why are we talking about Solomon? Well, you know, this past year, we've been in the book of Romans, and we've gotten to Romans 9 and 10, and Paul's addressing this, this very painful issue that God's chosen people of the Old Testament, his covenant people, despite being given all the privileges of being on the front lines of redemptive history, have rejected their own Messiah. They've rejected Jesus Christ. And what we've done here in the summer and are doing is just taking a pause in our study of Romans to look at the kind of the story of Israel, doing sort of a flyover of the Old Testament and looking at strategic events and peoples and happenings to try to understand what happened, what's, what's going on, what would lead a people, again, who've had all those advantages, covenantal blessings, to turn their back on their own Messiah. Because after all, we're not doing this merely as observers, right? We have a vested interest. We want to see ourselves in that story. We want to see how we, we are the present-day Jews from a spiritual perspective. We have all the blessings, and, but we don't want to miss Jesus. So let me just trace where we've been up to this point, okay? Remember, we said the church did not begin at Pentecost. The church did not begin in Acts chapter 2 or Acts chapter 1. The church began with Abraham. The church began on those dusty fields of Mesopotamia, where, where pagan Abraham, not following God, is called out by God, and God makes a promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to take you, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to, you're going to grow into a family, and then to a people, and then to a nation. And this nation is going to be the light to the Gentiles, to the world. So leave your home and family, you and Sarah, come over to Canaan, and I'm going to do a work of grace in you. And then we saw how this family of Abraham grew over the course of 400 years from two people to two million. And here they were, though, in Egypt as slaves, crying out to God, and God sends a deliverer. His name is Moses. 
And Moses, of course, leads the people out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, to the brink of the promised land. And remember, the promised land was going to be where God's people had their outposts. This was going to be their staging ground, their launching area. This, this is going to be the place where they covenanted with God, worshiped God, lived as his people, a holy people set apart to bring the light of the glory of the gospel of God to the world, to the nations. And Joshua is given that great privilege of bringing the people into the promised land and of conquering Jericho, and they set up shop. But as we saw last week, 400 years passed, and things are not going well. You see, in that day, Judges tells us, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king. There was no leader. And so God raised up a king. First of all, he gave them the king that Israel asked for, that they deserved, that was Saul. Then he said, I'm going to give you the king that I choose, a man after my own heart, um, that you don't deserve, and that's going to be David. And of course, we saw how God made this promise that a, as long as Israel was faithful, there was going to be a man who sat on David's throne forever, which brings us this morning to Solomon. Now, we have come to know Solomon, and, and, you, and you may know this even if you didn't grow up in church, even if you didn't go to Sunday school or read the Bible, you probably know something about Solomon. Maybe you know he's the... He's the wisest man who ever lived, or he wrote a lot of Proverbs, or he was the guy who was so smart he asked these two women to have their baby they were arguing about you know, cut in half, or you, you know something about Solomon, right? But as we are going to see, Solomon, who had such a great beginning, yet by the end of his life, the wisest man who ever lived had been transformed into one of the most foolish. A transformation that, to be quite honest you, is stunning. It is sad. It is sobering. Um, it is, um, you see Solomon who is unrecognizable from his glorious beginning. And re what we see is that this sets Israel down a path, and this is not an exaggeration, that she has till this day not recovered from. The kingdom is divided. It's wrenched out of the hand of Solomon. Spiritual devastation lingers across the land, and we want to understand how does this happen? Again, not as distant, abstract observers of the 21st century, but as seeing ourselves in the story. What can we learn? How can we guard our hearts? How can we take the lessons of Solomon to our own lives? So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 11. We're going to read the first 13 verses. And if you can, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word. And just like with baptism this morning, we don't do baptisms because they're just religious tradition. They, they signify something meaningful and spiritually significant. The same thing with standing to read God's word, right? We, we stand because we are situating ourselves under the word and letting it speak over into our lives. So let's begin with 1 Kings 11, verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, 
from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemos, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives, who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son." However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Let's pray. Lord, we confess this is a sobering text. Um, this is, this is a, a text, a story that gets our attention. And so, Father, um, we come to you in the posture of being Solomon's. Lord, we are all Solomon. We are all those who have a propensity to grow hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, to not guard our hearts. Lord, we don't want to end up that way. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to be fruitful. Lord, we want to give a good account to you. And so we ask now by your grace that you would open our eyes and our heart to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take your seats. Three points this morning, and this is going to sound like a sitcom, okay? Solomon in the beginning, Solomon in the middle, Solomon in the end. Can we handle that? All right, I think, I think we can do it. Solomon in the beginning, before we get into the depths of, of our text, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Kings um, 11, let me just look back for a moment at 1 Kings chapter 3. This is one of the most famous pa passages, 1 Kings 3 is, in the Bible, because God comes to Solomon. He says, Solomon, ask whatever you want, okay, and I will grant the desires of your heart. Now, if you were Solomon, what would you wish for? Right? Now, you have to do the Robin Williams proviso, right? What, what is Robin Williams? He's the genie in Aladdin. And he tells genie Aladdin he's got three wishes. And what can't he wish for? He can't wish for more wishes. That's cheating, right? Can't wish that somebody would come, would die, can't make somebody fall in love with you, etc. So beyond all of that sort of stuff, what would you wish for? What would Solomon wish for? 
1 Kings chapter 3. It's just an amazing passage. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? And this reminds me of that scene, you've heard me mention it before, from the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Prince Caspian, Aslan turns to Prince Caspian, says, who's just a young man, he says, son, are you ready to rule this great kingdom and empire, you little whippersnapper, right? And what does Caspian say? He's like, oh, I don't think so. I'm just a kid, Aslan. Well, that's Solomon. He, he knows he's clueless in this passage. He does the only thing he knows to do. He asks for help. He humbles himself. He says, God, I can't lead these people. I'm going to need your wisdom. I'm going to need your covering. I'm going to need your protection. And what does, how does God respond to this request on the behalf of Solomon? Listen to what he says. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days." And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Now, what I would encourage you to do is go home this afternoon or this week and in your quiet times, read 1 Kings 3 through 1 Kings 10. And you will find out that God blesses Solomon in the nation of Israel in unprecedented ways. In fact, the kingdom of, of, of Israel reaches its very pinnacle under Solomon's reign in every, in every way. Power, empire, land, money, influence, territory. Let me just give you a sampling, okay? A few verses from 1 Kings 3 through 10 that'll, that'll give you the sense of things of what a great start Solomon and Israel were off to. First Kings chapter 4. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. First Kings 4. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. You look at a map from the, from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates, modern-day Iraq. That is a huge area. This was a massive empire. And then 1 Kings 4.26, Solomon also had 40 thousand stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. 
and those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Now, before we journey further, let me address here just for a moment um, what we talked about last week and reconciling it with what we see here. Because remember last week, we looked at the job description of the king, the man after God's own heart from Deuteronomy 17. And there you will be, you will remember that specifically Moses warned the Israelites that for their king, he was not to multiply wealth and horses and fighting men. And so you may ask, how does this jive with Deuteronomy 17, where God clearly tells the kings not to pursue these things? Now, the reason this is not a contradiction is that in Deuteronomy 17, God makes it very clear, don't aspire to these things, king. Don't, don't seek after them for your own status, your own power, your own security, your own authority. D don't run after these things as if they were other gods. Don't pursue them for the sake of pursuing them. But here, what's happening is God is saying, I'm going to be the one to give you these things. Because, in fact, the desire of your heart is not to have them, but is to have me, I'm going to bless you with these material blessings. Now, let me just say a couple things that we want to, what are things we want to take from this and think that are applicable to us, and what are, what are wrong conclusions that we could draw. First of all, part of God's, it's very clear, blessing to Solomon and Israel was material. Absolutely. Money, men, um, prestige, all of these things. And part of his purpose in doing that was that Solomon and Israel were to be a blessing to those around them. Um, they were to build the temple to God. They were to sacrifice their resources. And, and, and we want to say, guys, this, this is important, because God has blessed Four Oaks Killarn materially. God, God has given us um, generous people in yourselves and leaders to steward that money um, to do kingdom things. And it's because of your generosity that we can do whatever you do, Camp, and baptize and send out gospel partners like the Watsons and invest in our marriage ministries, invest in our children and students. And, and we want to say that's a good thing, Okay. That's a good thing. We don't want to draw the wrong conclusion. Okay, now the wrong conclusion was, would be like prosperity theology says, we must be living right, right? Four Oaks Clark must be doing something right. We must be praying and sharing our faith and we can take pride in that. That would be the wrong conclusion to take, right? But at the same time, we don't want to take the opposite error and say and not rejoice in the fact that God has given us grace here. What we do want to be particularly mindful, though, is being generous, giving ourselves away, understanding that we can plant churches and do pastoral residencies and invest in the kingdom and start two congregations like this church has done over the past several years. That's the way we want to steward those resources. And so, guys, let me just say, thank you for your generosity in giving. Thank you for pressing in. Thank you. I, I I encourage us, exhort us to continue to excel in the grace of giving, and I pray we don't take pride in those things, but we use them to bless others and the kingdom. 
So, so that's one thing we want to say about what's happening here with Solomon. Now, one of the ways that Solomon and the people sacrificed with all the blessing that God give, give, had given them was to construct the temple. And when you read, I mean, when you read First, First Kings, you will see how magnificent this temple was. In fact, the temple was so magnificent that 400 years later, when it was destroyed by the Babylonians and the people of Israel came back to rebuild the temple, they all cried, and they cried for two different reasons, okay? One group cried because they were so happy to come home. Another group cried because the temple that had been rebuilt to replace Solomon's temple was so subpar compared to Solomon's temple, they were sad, right? And this was the crown jewel of Solomon's ministry. In fact, you could say this was the pinnacle of the pinnacle. Um, this was, not just was it glorious because um, of its splendor and the way it was built and the way it was decorated and all those things, it was glorious because Israel was at peace with God. This was where God dwelled. This was a symbol, okay, of the fact that God was with his people, that God had come down and made his residence with them. Now, I want you to listen what God says in 1 Kings 9 about this moment. This is the pivotal moment in Israel's history to this point, I think. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as your father walks with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Verse 6. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go after and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins." Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done this thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned their God, the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So, this is the pivotal moment, right? God has raised Solomon and Israel to this unprecedented pinnacle where they are to honor God, glorify him, to be a light to the nations. If only they don't turn aside. If only they continue to walk with God. Now, here's, here's the question. How does the wisest man in the history of the world become one of the most foolish. Solomon 
in the middle. All right, second point. There's an interesting pair of bookends in the first Kings, and here they are. In 1 Kings 3.3, it tells us that Solomon loved the Lord. But now look down at verse 1 in chapter 11 in our text, and what does it say? Now, Solomon loved many foreign women. Okay, do, you see, do you see the contrast? It's meant to like be spiritual smelling salts. It's meant to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what, what, what's happened here? Wait a minute, we went from the pinnacle, right? Solomon loved the Lord, was devoted to him with his whole heart. And now here we come to 1 Kings 11, Solomon loved many other women. And the nature of the, of the way that wording is phrased, it doesn't simply mean Solomon struggled with lust. Okay. It, it means that Solomon had given himself over to these things, that Solomon um, had developed this deep love relationship with women and sexuality. It, in fact, it's what marked him. Okay? Now, of course, this was a doubly treacherous development. Because not only had Solomon run after many women, which, for, which Deuteronomy 17 says not to do, but it also says that he ran after foreign wives. And this text makes clear one of the biggest problems with foreign wives is that they bring their what? Foreign gods okay, with them. So Solomon, and I was going to say like any good husband, but that's kind of a misnomer, right? Solomon, of course, wanted to please all of these women that he was bringing into his life, into his harem, which meant accommodating their gods and religions. And the way that he would do this is that he would erect what were called high places. Now, what is a high place? Think about a high place as kind of like a private shrine, a private chapel. It would be a place that, that was constructed that someone could go, if you, were, if you were devoted to this particular god, you would go up and worship and pay homage to your particular God in this particular place. I mean, no, one, no one's getting hurt, right? We know the big temple belongs to God, but we're just kind of accommodating all of these lesser gods. Now, here's what's interesting. Most likely, what would happen is that if you were an Israelite, you would go up to the Temple Mount, which is the highest point in the highest part of Jerusalem. And when you looked out, it tells us in the text, to the east on the mountains, you would see all of these high places constructed across the ridge. They were just little reminders. They were just little monuments and remembrances to all of these other gods. And, and you could imagine Solomon saying, we, listen, we, we know, right, that, that these aren't the true God. They're just little gods, we can, we can accommodate them. We, we, know that we, we know the God that we truly worship, but we understand, do we not, what a disastrous temptation this is. Guys, if you, if you really want to um, see what cultural accommodation looks like in the church, we are living in those days, right? There's always going to be a temptation to the church or the church universal to say, you know what, in order to gain entryway into our culture, in order to, to, to enter the academic halls of debate, in order to get a seat at the table, in order to show people that we're not really crazy, 
you know, to show people that we're nice and winsome and can play along, there's always going to be the great temptation to make, to accommodate our core Christian beliefs, to make them more palpable, to make them more easily received, to, to round off the rough edges, to begin to accommodate them in strategic ways. And oftentimes, let me just say this, the goal in that is noble. There is a noble instinct that says, you know what? I want people to know Jesus. I want people to know the gospel. And so I'm not going to quibble about sexuality. I'm not going to quibble about gender. I'm not going to quibble about this. I'm not going to quibble about that. Let's just try to bear, you know, break it down to the core gospel. But here's the issue. It never works. It never works. The history of the church is littered with apostasy. And apostasy always happens when there is an accommodation to a part of core Christian doctrine in the name of mission or in the name of acceptance or in the name of what have you. And this is very much what happened to Solomon. He didn't win them, they won him. It says Solomon's heart was drawn away from the Lord. Now let me say this about this idea of heart. A lot of times we have this misconception that the Old Testament deals in matters of the law and external obedience and ceremony, and that it's the New Testament that's more interested about the heart and the spirit. But I want you to notice in verses 3 and 4 how many times the word heart is mentioned. Let me read it. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of, his, of David his father. Now when we think about heart, a lot of times we can have the misconception that, that, our, that, our, that our thoughts are related to our mind and that our feelings are related to our heart. That's not the way Scripture talks about the heart. In actuality, the heart is the, is the locus of everything that we are as people. It's our thoughts. It encompasses our emotions, our will. The heart, biblically speaking, is the convergence point of everything that a person is. It's the essence of who we are. That, that when, the word, when the scripture uses the word heart, it's getting at who you are at the deepest part of your being. This is why Jesus can say in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the, what, heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Now, let me say a couple of things about the Christian and the heart. One of the things that you're going to walk away from this text asking, okay, is, Pastor Paul, was Solomon a believer? And I'm not going to answer that question, all right? It does, well, I'll, 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 I'll tell you what I think, because this, it doesn't really say. I, I do think Solomon's a believer, because I think when the, when the text uses phrases like, his heart wasn't wholly committed to the Lord, okay, there's this idea that he loves the Lord, he had a heart set before the Lord, but over time, his heart had become deceived. deceived. 
his heart had become desensitized. His heart had become dull. And I think as believers, we understand very much what this is about, right? See, as believers, we have been given a new heart. But the remnants of our old heart, our old man, our sin nature still reside in us. And we have to be very careful that we do not have an over-realized eschatology. What does that mean? We, we don't think that we're further along than we really are. We have to be very sober in our assessment of our nature, that our hearts are still prone to deception. Our hearts are still prone to being hardened and to having our consciences desensitized. And this is what happened to Solomon. Look what it says here, back to the text. It says he clung to these women in love. That word for clung to, or to cling, it's the same one we find in Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and what? Cleave to his wife. Cling to his wife. It denotes the most intimate and close of relationships. And isn't that just how sin works? What the writer of Kings is telling us is that sin had gotten its hooks into Solomon at his deepest core. There, there, was, there was something in Solomon's heart which told him, I cannot live without these. If you want to know this morning what your heart is clinging to, and I don't say if it's clinging, because all of our hearts are. If, you're, if you want to know what your heart is clinging to and my heart is clinging to, just ask yourself that question. What is it that I think I cannot live without? What is the one thing that if this was taken away, honestly, I just don't know how I would orient to life. I, I don't know how I would move forward. This was Solomon, and he found it not impossible, but incredibly difficult to resist. Now, we all know, right, and I think this is the story of the kings, this doesn't happen all at once. In fact, if you read back through 1 Kings, you'll, you'll notice that there are, there are little hints here and there. Solomon this and Solomon that, just, just, just little compromises along the way. Hardness of heart almost always happens, church, incrementally. In other words, Solomon did not wake up one day and say, today is the day I'm going to take a thousand wives. That would be a very awkward honeymoon, let's be honest, right? No, 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 that's, some of you get it. So, that's, <laughs> Will Peters. Decision by decision, compromise by compromise, it took a lifetime but it specifically mentions that he is an old man and his heart has grown dull. Because I think it would be safe to say that Solomon had an interior world that no one knew about. Solomon had an interior world that he did not allow anyone access to. There were things going on under the surface that no one was aware of. Solomon did not have a Nathan in his life. Remember Nathan? He comes to David and says, David, 
you're doing really dumb things. He's doing a lot of things that Solomon was doing. And he brings it to David's attention, and David repents. Solomon is not so fortunate to have such a friend in his life. There's untold things going on under the surface. Guys, that's the way sin works. Um, One of my favorite movies is a movie called Shawshank Redemption, and it's about a prisoner named Andy Dufresne. And he is an innocent man, wrongly convicted of killing his wife. And so he has been shut up for a lifetime in Shawshank Prison, and he comes under the, the control and sway of the warden there, who is an evil guy, and he, and he subverts Andy's and takes his, Andy's gifts as an accountant and businessman, and he uses them to, to organize his own deceitful schemes within the prison and the community. And, and most of the movie is felt of, of just, Andy is on this, under this terrible weight, and he's down and discouraged, and he struggles to have hope. And it all comes to, to a head one day where Andy goes to his cell, and he seems to be so defeated. And you're left wondering, is he going to take his own life? And so the next morning, when they open the cell door, and guys, if this is spoiler alert for you, you should have seen this movie already. I'm sorry, okay. They open the door, and you're like, what's going to happen? Is he going to be dead? Well, he's not dead. He's gone. And no one knows where he's gone. And everybody's scurrying around. And the warden comes up and it says, what's happened? How did he disappear? And the warden takes a rock and he throws it against the wall. And instead of a, a smack, they hear an echo. And they peel back the poster on his wall and realize that for the last 30 years, Andy Dufresne has been chiseling through that rock with a little gym axe, one piece of dirt at a time. And now he is gone. It's an amazing story. Okay, that's what happens with the heart. It happens, doesn't happen all at once, but it, but, but it happens purposefully, deliberately, one decision at a time, one compromise at a time, one piece of dirt at a time, all out from under view. So how did Solomon, the wisest man, become the most foolish man? Now, I'm going to co-op Paul Tripp here in his language he uses for this and say this. Solomon did not have a woman problem. Solomon did not have a sex problem. Solomon did not have a lust problem. And if you want to think about whatever your heart is clinging to this morning, you don't have a lying problem, you don't have a deceit problem, you don't have a power problem, you don't have a money problem. Ultimately, we all have an awe problem. A-W-E. Solomon had lost his fear of the Lord, and with it, his wisdom from God. Listen to, these, listen to the way that the scriptures draw the connection between wisdom. Remember, he started off fearing the Lord and was wise. He stopped fearing the Lord and was foolish. Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Oh, by the way, who wrote those? Solomon. Very, don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Guard your heart. And when we, see, when we hear fear of the Lord, we're not talking about a, a, an 80s, um, 
horrifleck with blood and such. When we talk about fear, we're talking about a holy awe, an adoration, something greater than you that brings you to your knees. Something that beckons your soul to say, you are mighty and you are great. Before we leave this point, what are you clinging to? What's captured the deepest part of your soul? What is that thing? Yes, have your plan. Yes, you can get your set of resolutions. Yes, you need to get your accountability partner. All those things are important in their context. But fundamentally, church, recapture the sense of awe. Return, listen to Revelation 2.4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. It begins by saying, God, I'm so tired of clinging. God, I, I'm, I, I, my heart is dull. My heart has grown hardened in certain ways. It's been deceived in certain ways. God, he, here, is, here is my heart, and I pray, Lord, that you would cultivate a sense of awe in my relationship with you. There's no substitute for communion with God, with Jesus who loved you, who gave himself up for you. This is what Solomon lost. I pray that we don't lose it as well. Last point, this will be quick. Solomon in the end. What happens with old Solomon? Verse 11, therefore the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes and my commandments, I have commanded you, I will surely tear from you and will give it to your servant. So again, this reminds us, does it not, sin has consequences. And I want to just point out three things from this text to take home with you today, to meditate on as you consider this passage. Number one, sin is always communal. Sin is never individual only. Sin is always relational. No matter what we may tell ourselves otherwise, it will always impact others. It will impact our leadership, our influence. And make no mistake, it wouldn't be proper to say that Solomon's fall caused Israel's fall. Israel made their own choices. But it would be very appropriate to say that Solomon's fall set the trajectory for Israel's fall. Because you have great ability in who you are and who God has made you to affect great change or great sin and destruction in the lives of other people. Remember, sin is always communal. Number two, aging is fraught with danger. It makes a mention, verse 4, when Solomon was old. Because let me just say this, I, I, am, I am firmly convinced that one of our chief missions as a church is to pass the, torch, the gospel torch to the next generation. That, that we need to be starting new churches, we need to be raising up leaders, we need to be pouring ourselves into youth and children and students. That's part of our, the Great Commission. 
totally believe that and am fully vested in it. But one of the things we don't often hear about as much, it's not as sexy, it's not as flashy, is ministering to those of God's people who are on their journey through the life cycle of their spiritual life. In other words, one of the things that we learn from Solomon is how important it is to walk with people till the very end. Because that's one of the things that, that animates my heart as a pastor, that I want to walk with you on that journey, that persevering journey. I want, I want you to walk with me. I need that. You need that. Because as we see from the story of Solomon, it's not how you start, right? It's how you finish. Last one and then we're done. God's grace, even despite this mess, is greater. Because here, look back at the text, here's essentially what God tells Solomon. He says, Solomon, even though you've utterly failed, by my grace, I'm not going to take the whole kingdom away. I'm going to give your line, your succession, one tribe. And of course, what tribe was that? It was the tribe of Judah. It's where Jerusalem was. And what we see here is God's unrelenting, unmerited grace. Because who is it that comes from the line of Judah? We know it's Jesus. And it's Jesus who is going to come and do what Solomon, and by the way, no other king could do. He was going to persevere to the end perfectly. He was going to be the one who came from the line of David. He was going to be the one who would not just start well, but he would end well. But his, his ending, in order it, for it to be well for us, had to be death for him. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so here, there is this promise to Solomon in and God is just holding out his grace. And this is, and this is why this, this passage, despite its such sobering nature, gives me such incredible hope. That ultimately our hope in this life, ultimate hope, is not found in our obedience, is not found in our faithfulness, as important as those are, they are found in Christ. And so let me call you this morning, Four Oak Church, to this reality. If you are feeling a little like Solomon this morning, if you're, if you're, if you're like, Pastor Paul, I am Solomon. My heart's been hardened. I've been deceived by sin. What do I do now? Run to Christ. Come to him with an open palm and an open hand and say, God, I've been clinging to so much in my life. And I know that independent of anything else, the thing I need and want the most is you. Jesus, I choose you. And this is why we end our services with the table. When we come to the table, church, what are we saying? We're saying Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who became obedient to death, even death on a cross, 
my hope is in him. I am trusting in him. I am following him. So all of us Solomons here this morning, cast yourself on Jesus. So let me just ask you to do this, just silently to yourself. I'm going to just ask you to reflect for a minute or two on this message in preparation for coming to the table. So won't you bow your heads and do that, and then our leaders are going to come forward and prepare to serve the elements.